Good morning, everyone. My name is Aaron, uh, pastor here for Riverwood. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I hope to after the service. But it is good to see familiar faces among us, whether they are here every week or they uh, haven't been here in a while. It's great to see each and every one of you. Uh, in a little while, we're going to be honoring dads. And to set that up, we'll be seeing a video called Stuff Dads Never Say. And I'm about to say something that I can't recall ever having said, and I probably won't ever say again, so you listen up. But if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone open, I want you to close it right now. All right? I know, as a pastor, you almost never hear them say, close your Bibles. But I'm going to give you a little Bible test, and I need this to not be an open book test. So close them. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, oh no, I don't know the Bible very well. You're thinking, oh no, I'm, I'm going to fail this test. Actually, I don't think you will. And the fact that you don't know the Bible very well is actually going to prove my point. Okay, so here's the test. How many of you have ever heard of the reference John 3.16? Okay, a large majority of hands go up, okay? In fact, some of the hands that just went up, if I asked you, could you recite John 3.16? Many of you could. You would know that it says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but would have eternal life. It probably helps that we have banner man. All right, you know, it's that guy or that gal that takes the banner to the game and they hold it up. And so right there on national TV, John 3:16 is seen and it just continues to remind us of that verse. And so many people would probably feel and argue that John 3.16 is the most well-known and probably the most, most quoted verse in all of the Bible. But I think it has been usurped. I actually think there is another verse that is now more quoted than John 3.16. And that is Matthew 7.1. Now, if I just said, quote Matthew 7.1, probably not a whole lot of you could. However, if I quote it for you, I can guarantee that almost all of you have heard it. In fact, I'm just going to quote the first phrase, and I'm going to use the famous old New International Version. The New International Version says, do not judge. How many of you have ever heard that? Pretty much every hand goes up again. In fact, some of us have even quoted this and knowing it's in the Bible. And there are even people who have never read the Bible, and they can quote this for you. I think it's because we, as a nation, often rush to judgment. And in defense, people will say, you know, the Bible says, do not judge. Let me give you an example from this week. Last Sunday, I stood on the stage. I taught from Matthew 6, the, the end portion. We sang songs together. We prayed together. And I did all of it oblivious to what had taken place just hours before in Orlando, Florida. I didn't know that a gunman had walked into a nightclub, killed about 50 people, and injured another 50. And then the conversation that has come out of that has been just rife with strife. First, the gun. The, the people are going nuts over this. There are people now arguing that this is why we need more gun laws. We need more, more stricter gun laws. Whereas other people are saying, no, we actually need to arm every citizen. Because if there had been someone with a gun in that nightclub, they could have taken him out and less people would have lost their lives. And while these people are arguing about gun laws, others are pointing out the shooter was Muslim. And he identified as being loyal to ISIS. 
And so people are arguing that, well, this shows that Islam is a, is a religion of, of, of anger and violence. And others are saying, no, you can't judge a religion based on the actions of one extremist. And so while these people are arguing about religion, then over here you have people arguing because the incident took place at a nightclub known as a gay club. And so most of those who lost their lives were people who identified as gay and lesbian. And so you have a bunch of people saying, this is why we have to fight for more gay rights because they're still discriminated against. They were targeted. And yet some other people have actually stood up in pulpits saying, we should actually be thanking this gunman for taking out such people like these. And so in the midst of this conversation, the strife and everything going on starts to rise this voice, quoting Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge. Do not judge someone's politics. Do not judge someone's religions. Do not judge someone's orientation. Because when you do, that's how you end up with situations like this. If we would all just not judge one another, we would have a more peaceful society. And, and what gives weight to their argument is the fact that Jesus himself says these words. In my Bible, they're in red. But there's one humongous problem with this. It's that when Jesus said, do not judge, it was not period, end of sentence, there it is. It was actually the beginning of a conversation on how to judge. That's right, today, we are going to learn how to judge others. The thing is, when we learn to judge the way Jesus tells us to, we're actually going to discover it brings the type of peace that the do not judge crowd wants. We can't ignore judging because to do so, actually, as we're going to see today, denies the necessity of the gospel. But when you allow God's gospel to to pervade your entire life, it's going to change how you judge. And it will actually lead you into more tolerant, more loving, more compassionate conversations. And people might actually listen to your judgment. So let's pray. Father, as we get ready to go into your word and we go into this pretty much controversial topic, I pray that it would be you who teach us today. That I've put in my time, my preparation, my work. But God, what I really want is for your words to be what comes out. And so may you help us to hear from your Holy Spirit. And that each and every one of us, whether we claim to follow Jesus, we would be impacted by this. And we would change how we go about interacting in the world. And that we would judge the way you teach us to. And for anyone who's here today that may not know you, that they would hear this and they would hear your gospel. And it would, they would realize that you have judged them and yet you love them. And they would find themselves wanting to change their lives, change their ways, and accept you and follow Jesus. So Father, help us to hear today what you have been saying throughout all of time. And it's even for this time as now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, Bible apps are totally fine. Um, We've got the scripture on the screen for those of you that don't have a Bible. But if you do not have a Bible, please take one off of our uh, Give and Grow table. That would be our gift to you. It's not stealing, despite what the announcement slide says up there. Please take a Bible with you at the end of the day. But we're ready for Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to see verse 1. But we're going to see what follows it and see what, how Jesus teaches us how to judge. Here's what Jesus says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? 
you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And if you remember those kind of old AmeriQuest commercials, they would be setting up a scene. You'd see something, you know, start to unfold. And then someone would walk in right at the end of the scene, and it would look totally different than what had really happened. If, if you don't remember, here's one of them for you. This has a fractured fibula. Given well, Saturday. So he can be able to go home tomorrow. Daddy's going to be so excited. That killed him. Paging Dr. Palmer, Dr. Barbara Palmer. When someone stops at verse 1 of Matthew 7, it's like they walked in at the wrong time. It's like they don't see the complete picture. Because Jesus is not saying, do not judge, and that's it. As we've said, he's actually teaching us how to judge. And in these six verses, he gives us a three-step process that we have to follow. It has to go in order. You can't skip any step. So we're going to look at those three steps. The first step is to judge yourself. Step one is judge yourself. Look at verse three. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The Greek words that Jesus uses here for speck, it refers to like sawdust. It's a tiny little flake. It's really small. But if you've ever had sawdust or a little granule get into your eye, it hurts. It's bothersome. You start tearing up. I mean, it's not supposed to be there. But then Jesus, in just a brilliant move, uses extreme hyperbole and points out that, well, but you have a log. Uh, The word here for log, some translations put it as plank because it was often used in building for the beam that would be used like in the center of your house that you'd build your roof off of or the, the center beam that you'd put your floor on. And so it's this huge plank, this huge beam, and that's what he uses to put the picture of what's sticking out of your eye. Because what he wants you to see is that your sin is great. You see, too often we play this dangerous spiritual game. It's this comparison game where we look at the sin of others and we somehow justify that theirs is worse than mine. And you'd say, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I've done this and this and this, but I haven't done that. And I haven't done that. And by doing so, we hope that maybe God grades on a curve. And that as he looks at everything, he'd say, well, you're clearly better than them, so I, I guess I'll love you or I'll bless you or, okay, I'll, I'll let you into heaven because, hey, we're not that bad. But, but the problem is that other people are not the standard. God is the standard. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned. That's everyone. The word all means all. And that all fall short of God's glorious standard. Everyone. If we were to put this into an, an analogy of like a, a test, let, let's imagine that in order to get into the kingdom of God, you have to pass a spiritual test. And let's just say you do really, really well. Let's say you score a 90 
right, and we're going to go with the really generous grade curve. Then a 90, that's like an A minus. I mean, you did really well. This is a hard test, and you scored 90. And, and the guy sitting next to you, ooh, he only got a 45. I mean, he got half of what you got. I mean, you are clearly better than him. But the problem is, the only way you pass this test is if you get a 100. You have to be perfect. But according to Romans 3.23, no one is perfect. No one has ever passed the test. And when you don't get a 100, even if you got a 99, you still don't pass. And the penalty for not passing the test is death. So whether you got a 90 or a 99 or a 45, you all get the same penalty, death. And so your 90 is really not better than the 45. That's why Jesus says, before you judge others, you have got to stop and judge yourself. Before you start playing that comparison game, you cannot look at their 45 and say, oh, I'm better. Because your 90 compared to God's 100, it's like a log out of your eye. It's huge. It's a chasm that can't be crossed. So before you start going and waving your finger around, bring it back around and look at yourself and realize just how grave your sin is. Because when you judge yourself, when you see just how sinful you are, it actually humbles you. It's this like depressing effect. It sours you. You're not quite so quick to then judge others thinking you're better because you've looked at yourself and you realize, I deserve death. I don't pass the test. So if you're going to judge others, first stop and do step one, judge yourself. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, you've got to go on to step two. And that we see in verse five. It's just the first half of it there. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own I, once you've stopped and admitted that you have a log, once you've judged yourself and realized I have sin, now you've got to confess that sin. And the thing is, none of us can earn and work to get the log out of our own eye. In order for us to remove the log, we have to submit to spiritual surgery and allow God to get in there and carve it out. It means we have to confess. First John uh, chapter 1 Uh, John's writing to this church, and he says to them in verse 8, If we say we have no sin, in other words, we say we have no log, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you walk around thinking that you don't have a log in your eye, that you don't really have sin, that your 90 is good enough, you're deceiving yourself. You've got to stop, examine yourself, and then you confess it. And when you confess, John tells us, God is able and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He can remove the log. And the amazing thing about that is that when you judge yourself, it kind of brings you down. It sours you. And then when you confess your sin, you realize what God has done for you. And it now frees you and it makes you eternally glad. And now there's this joy that floods in. And now the log's out of your eye and you can now see far more clearly. So if you're going to judge others, you must first stop and do step one. Judge yourself, then confess your sin, allow God to remove the log. And now you're ready to do step three. And that is to judge others. But now you'll be judging them 
with love. Notice the second half there of verse 5. Once the log is removed out of your own eye, he says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice he's still calling it a speck. The, the speck's not supposed to be there. It, it's not good. You're actually making a judgment call. You're having to identify it as sin. Now, because you've judged yourself, you realize, Haha, I've got a log, all right? So my sin is like, it's, it's worse than yours. But I know what it's like to have a log in my eye. I know what it is to have it removed. And now you go to them with compassion. You see, if you just stop at verse 1 and you just say, oh, do not judge. You're letting them walk around with a speck in their eye. It, it can get infected. It can make things worse. They can't see clearly. Is that really love? No, love is to actually identify it for what it is. Now, it's not like your kid. You, you can't just hold them down and force this thing out, right? They have to, un, to undergo the eye surgery. They, want to, they have to want the speck out. And if they're not willing to admit they have a speck, you're not going to be able to do much more than just to pray for them and continue to love them. But if you approach them with compassion, if you can approach them with love, if you approach them as someone who's not better than them, you're just like one beggar showing another beggar where the food is, they're far more likely to now listen to you. Because you'll say, oh, yeah, I had this log in my eye, but here's what God's done for me. Now maybe they're a little more prone to want to listen to you and allow you to help them get the speck out. And that, to get that speck out means that they find Jesus and allow him to remove it. And they begin to see clearly and follow him. That is how you judge. You first come and you judge yourself. Then you confess your sin. And now you are ready to judge someone else. Because you'll do it with love, with compassion, with understanding. You won't be standing in the place of righteousness as if you are the judge. You're going to be one saying, hey, I've stood before the judge. And here's what Jesus did for me. Now, Jesus gives two warnings in here. He warns us that if you try to skip over, step, uh, skip over steps one and two and jump right to step three, he gives a warning to that person. Or for those people who just try to skip over step three and just say, ah, let's do not judge. He gives another warning. And these are important. So warning number one, if you try to skip over steps one and two, jump right to step three and judge someone, he warns us, you will be judged the way you have judged Look at it there in verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Poor Orlando, Florida this week not only made the news Sunday because of the shooting, but two days later made the news because a little two-year-old boy from Nebraska was caught by an alligator and dragged into the water where he drowned. And it's just, I mean, it's just horrific. I feel bad for the parents. And one of my friends from Kansas City, her name is Kim. Her husband, Mike, actually helped us in some of our branding and the logo for Riverwood. Uh, she's an incredibly sweet, incredibly intelligent woman. But she posted this on Facebook this week. She was in Hy-Vee in the grocery store, and a man approached her, and he said, what a cute baby. Kim and Mike are brand new parents, so they've just got a little one, just a few months old. So Kim responds, thank you, him. Now, don't take her down to Florida to be eaten by an alligator. Me, in shock of the horrible inappropriateness of his comment, it's so sad, isn't it? What a horrible tragedy. Him, with a judgmental tone. Those parents, 
They should have been holding that baby and it wouldn't have happened. Me, restraining myself from punching him in the face. It sounds like one of those freak accidents. Him, not letting me finish my sentence and walking away while giving me a judgmental look. Now, if, if Kim was here, if you guys could meet her, you would realize she's incredibly sweet. She's not like strongly opinionated, but this bothered her deeply. So she had to go on and she shared these thoughts. I normally don't post on many topics in the news, but after this exchange, I just wanted to say, I pray first the good Lord shields my family from trauma like this. And second, if we do have a tragedy in our family, I pray it doesn't make it in the national news. We live in a world where instead of flooding parents with prayers when something bad happens, they are judged and deemed unfit. My heart breaks for this family and for our fallen society. What happened to grace and grieving? Now, I want you to imagine that this gentleman doesn't just, you know, expose his judgment to Kim there in high V. He, he shares it with the cashier. He shares it with someone at work. He shares it with the lady at the counter at the, the car mechanic. He, he's sharing it everywhere. You know, three weeks ago, it was another family at a zoo. And their three-year-old son fall, falls in and is being dragged around by a gorilla. And people went nuts because they shot the gorilla. And all sorts of people were making judgments. Let's say this guy holds the same judgment, those parents. And so he goes around spewing this judgment around. And now imagine the tragedy strikes him. Something happens to one of his kids. What, what do you think the response is going to be of those who've already heard his judgments of others? They're probably not going to give him that much pity, are they? They're probably inside, they won't say this out loud, but inside their head, they're going to be thinking, yeah, you reap what you sow. I mean, you deserve it. You get it. Because somehow we internally know that the judgment that you use against others is the very standard that's going to be used against you. When Paul was writing to a church in Rome, he said this very thing. It's in what we would know as chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. When Paul starts out his letter there in chapter 1, he starts describing what I call the spiral of sin. Of how when you deny God, what begins to happen. And as he's describing the spiral, how people get further and further away from their creator. It's like Paul knows his readers are looking at that going, yep, yep, I know someone like that. I know someone like that. Oh man, those people totally deserve separation from God. They deserve hell. And that's when Paul says, be careful. Because the measure that you use against others will be measured against you. You go and do the exact same things as these people. Don't skip steps one and two. Jump into step three, thinking that somehow you're God. Instead, humble yourself, judge yourself, confess your sin. And you'll be more understanding and you'll lead with grace. And then people will want to hear you. But if you don't, I'm just going to warn you, you're in for a deep downfall because you will be judged yourself. But Jesus gives us a second warning, and that is found in verse 6. He tells us that we have to judge, and we have to judge the dogs and the pigs. In verse 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, 
I'm a dog person. I love dogs. However, I am married to someone who is not a dog person. And so therefore, we don't have a dog because as you all know, happy wife, happy life. So we don't have a dog. And so I will have to make myself content by just visiting all of you, enjoying your dogs, which is actually better because I'll let you feed the dog, you'll have the vet bills, and I could just pet them and play with them and be done. It's kind of like being a grandparent. (laughs) But in Jesus's day, there were no dog people because dogs were wild. They weren't domesticated. They were vicious. They were dirty. They scrounged for their food. No one liked dogs. Same with pigs. Back in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, God laid out this, you know, what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. And one of the things he said they couldn't eat were pigs, were swine. And so pigs were seen as dumb, as dirty, as bad, as unclean. And then Jesus starts talking about dogs and pigs. And he actually uses kind of a little poem. He uses what's called a chiasm. Uh, We've talked about chiasms before, but if you weren't here or you've kind of forgotten, a chiasm is where you start with something and you work your way in and then work your way back out. It's like an A, B, B, A type of structure. You could do A, B, C, C, B, A. The the most famous A, B, B, A uh, structured chiasm in in American uh, culture is John Kennedy's famous line. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You see how he takes them and flips it and you work your way in and then back out. Jesus does that here. He starts with dogs, goes to pigs, and then you see how it's the pigs that will trample the pearls, but then the dogs are vicious and will attack you. But what does this have to do with his warning? It's this. You have to judge. There are some people that you will try to give grace to. People that you will try to show love to. People that you will give the gospel to. Because the gospel has impacted your life. It's changed you. You've judged yourself. You've confessed your sin. And now you see their sin. And you love them. You care for them. And so you start to bring it to them. And no matter what you do, they will hate you. Because they are actually vicious. And they will take this grace that you give them. And they will trample upon it. And he gives you a warning. That's why you can't just skip step three and say, do not judge. Because there will actually be people hurt if you take that approach. When I was the young adult pastor at a large Bible church in Cedar Rapids, we we ran four services on a Sunday. And three of those were in the morning. And so I would often try to be in the lobby between services so that I could meet new people to our church. As a large church, we had lots of frequent visitors. And we just wanted them to feel at home. Because in a large church, people start to feel like maybe just a number. Like they don't matter. And we just wanted people to know that, hey, God created you. You matter to him. So therefore, you matter to us. And I especially wanted to get to know any young adults that were visiting. Well, on one particular Sunday, a guy who I'm going to name Alex, not his real name, but Alex approached me and I was kind of impressed. I mean, like he sought me out. I'd been pointed out, hey, that's the young adult pastor. And he comes up to me. And so I immediately start asking him the normal questions. You know, where are you from? You know, how'd you find out about the church? It turns out his parents had joined our church about three or four years prior, loved it, had been growing tremendously spiritually And now he had just moved back that week from living out of state for the last, I think, about five years. And he was coming to visit the church that his parents loved. And then suddenly our conversation took a really strange turn. He started sharing with me how he thought he had a spiritual gift of discernment. How God had given him a gift of seeing error in others. 
And, and that he was basically offering his spiritual gift to me so that we could identify anyone within the young adult ministry or within the church as a whole who was a heretic, and we could then get them out. Now, I will be honest, I had a few red flags going off. I was judging him. But I wanted to be the type of person who led with grace. And so I thought, you know, we'll take a wait-and-see approach. But I also realized we've got to just kind of keep an eye on this one. Sure enough, about two weeks later, he came into one of the Sunday morning groups that I oversaw. I happened to be in there that week. And we were showing a video. And during the conversation afterwards, he said that the celebrity pastor in that video was a heretic. Okay. Um, a little startling, kind of bothered some people, but, you know, talked through it. Well, about two weeks later, he visited another Sunday morning group. And that one had a live teacher. And afterwards, he said that that guy was a heretic. And a few weeks after that, he wrote a letter to our elders saying that they were heretics. And pretty soon, he's going on Facebook posting about how our pastor is a heretic, telling people they should not be going to this church at all. If we had skipped over step three entirely, if we had just not judged and just let Alex run rampant within our church, he would have hurt a lot of people because, to put it bluntly, he was a dog. He was vicious, and he took the very good thing of the gospel of Jesus and turned it into a weapon, and he was hurting people with it. And so we had to judge, and we had to protect the flock that God had given us, and it meant Alex had to be removed from the church. And he did not go quietly. It was painful. It was loud. We tried to do it with grace. But that was the type of situation, if we hadn't stepped in, there would have been people who would no longer go to church any longer because they would have looked at that and said, that was a Christian. Look what he did. There's no way I'm going to follow that sort of God. Because you see, he had skipped right over steps one and two, jumped to step three, labeled everyone a heretic. If you did not see it exactly as him, you were outside of the Bible. Therefore, you were outside of the faith and you needed to then be outside of the church. And do you remember how the measure that's used against others will be used against you? It later turned out that Alex had some substance abuse problems. He also had an addiction to pornography and he actually was caught with a minor. His life just went in shambles because he wasn't willing to judge himself to confess his sin and then through love and compassion help others Jesus is not saying do not judge because to not judge him would have been dangerous but you've got to judge you do it with love you do it with compassion and you do it for the sake of the gospel so rather than judge like Alex I'm going to encourage you to judge like Jim. Jim Daly is the president of Focus on the Family. If you're not familiar with Focus on the Family, it's a well-known organization, mostly well-known for their very strong conservative Christian stance on a number of political issues. So this makes them very well-loved by a lot of church-going folks, people who especially vote Republican. But to those who would consider themselves liberal or progressive— yeah, focus on the family is not one of their most popular places. They really see them as the enemy. And one person who used to see focus on the family as the enemy, and thereby extension, Jim Daly, their president, was a man by the name of Ted Trimpa. Ted is a gay individual who has stood for a lot of democratic uh, principles. And in Colorado, where uh, focus on the family is headquartered, Ted has tried to push forward democratic agenda 
And he has helped turn what was once a very Republican-leaning state into now more of a uh, Democratic-leaning state. And it's been noticed and heralded by a number of people. And Ted Trempa, Trempa looked at, focused on the family and hated them. And focused on the family would look at Ted Trempa and the Trempa group and would hate them. One day, Jim Daly shared how he was in a conference and he heard about human trafficking especially sex trafficking, and how some of that sex trafficking was happening right in their very beloved state of Colorado. And it deeply bothered Jim. He said he went back to his office and he began praying, praying, God, what should we do? How should Focus on the Family respond to this? Because we care about people and this is not right. What should we do? And he sensed God say, call Ted Trimpa. Kind of surprised him because Ted had been very vocal about being anti-focus on the family and therefore anti-Jim Daly. But Jim decided that if God's told him to reach out to Ted, maybe I should reach out to Ted. Because even though they disagree on a number of issues, surely they could come together on this and say that human trafficking is wrong and that sex trafficking is evil. So Jim calls. (laughs) He shared in the interview that I heard, he he shared that... uh, The secretary didn't exactly believe it was really Jim Daly who focused on the family and hesitantly put it through. And Ted Trimpa, in the same interview, said that he was hesitant to pick up the phone, but he picks it up and began a conversation of how could they bring their two organizations together to fight human trafficking. And what they didn't expect, though, was a friendship that birthed out of this. As I listened to the interview of these two sitting together on the couch, they began to show a genuine affection for one another. Like they deeply cared for each other. In fact, when Ted went through a health crisis and ended up in the hospital, Jim Daly made the drive up from Colorado Springs to Denver to go see him in the hospital. Ted said some of his closest friends didn't even come visit him. It really impacted him. And Jim right there publicly said the thing that he longs for most for his friend Ted is that Ted would find Jesus and begin to follow him. That he would make Jesus the center of his life. And right there in the same interview, Ted said he wasn't quite sure he was ready to do something like that. But he did say that his mind had changed about evangelical Christians and about focus on the family because of Jim Daly. Because Jim did not approach him as someone who was coming in like a judge, judging them, you're evil, you're a dog. Instead, Jim approached him like someone who had already judged himself who'd confessed his own sin and then could look at Ted and realize, I'm no better. And it turned out that Ted wasn't the vicious dog that Jim thought he was. He actually began to respond and now a friendship is birthed out of it simply because Jim did not judge like the world thinks we judge. He began to judge in the way Jesus said to. So I want to encourage you, judge, judge others. But do it the way Jesus has taught us. First, judge yourself. See how grave your sin is. And then confess it. Let the gospel permeate your life. And out of that, you will now judge others with compassion, with love, with understanding, with patience. And they will sense that you truly care for them. It doesn't mean you excuse everything. But it does mean you care. And you're right there with them. And when God makes them ready, perhaps you will get the joy of watching them have their speck removed by the gospel of Jesus and they can see Jesus clearly. But I warn you, if you skip over steps one and two, 
You are not going to experience that when you just jump to step three. In fact, you're in for hurting. And let me also warn you, don't skip over step three. Don't just rush and say, well, we're not going to judge at all. Because that's not loving either. Instead, judge yourself, confess your sins, and then judge with love. And that is how to judge. So, Father, it's one thing for us to read it. It's another thing for us to hear it. And it's yet a deeper, harder thing to go and do it. Father, some of us in this room have been deeply hurt. And so it's easy for us to rush to judgment. And I pray, Father, you would heal those hurts so that we could truly see people for the way you see them and love them the way they need to be loved, to love them like Jesus would love them. Father, some of us in this room, we've been rushing to judgment because we've kind of bought into the lie that we're righteous. We've got it all together. And we're forgetting that we've got a log in our eye. Our sin is great. It's huge. And yet, Jesus, you came and died for it. You've given us grace. And when you helped us to see the beauty of the gospel, you removed that log from us so we could see your glory beautifully and perfectly. So, Father, I want to I just pray that you would clear up our vision that we would see you for who you are and that would then change our relationships. So Father, would you do this deep work in us so that you can make us to go and be a blessing, to love others like Jesus would love them and to live among them like Jesus would live among them. Because there are people walking around with a bunch of specks in their eye. It's clouding their vision. They think they're going through life fine. But what they need is you. And perhaps the glimpse that they need to see you is to see you in us. So, Father, help us to do the hard work of humbling ourselves before you, letting you purify us so that we can go and love with compassion and not go in like a judge. So, Father, would you do this in us for your glory and for our joy? It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask for this. Amen.